Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern. I'm here with Angelina Stanford and Heidi White, and we are here to talk about Crossing to Safety Part 2, Chapters 4 and 5. But first, Heidi, Angelina, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's so great. The weather here is really nice. It's about 80 <laughs> are degrees. you just trying to rub it in? I yeah. was <laughs> brought to you by Hurricane Florence, and Heidi's like, we're having the best. I mean, I'm just laying out in my patio. It's I'm wonderful. a little, yeah, I'm a little hot. It's a little boring, actually. All this sunshine and, you know, beautiful, clear view of the mountains. <laughs> Well, I personally enjoy haunting, mournful wind waking me up at 5 a.m. I don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> it's weathering. A grand time. Yeah. <laughs> weathering. Yeah. Uh, yes, I was this close to wondering if Heathcliff was banging on my windows this morning. Seriously, that's what, <laughs> that's what it sounded like. You'll wander off into the moors with your great love. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah, no. Just he avoid the moor. Down the door. <laughs> Go away. Not not interested. I like Mr. Dorsey. Cliff can hit the hills without me. Yeah. Well, yes, we are. Uh, Angelina and I, both being in North Carolina, are awaiting the oncoming Hurricane Florence. Shouldn't be as bad by the time it gets to either of us as uh, what they were initially predicting, but then also what the coastline is getting. So any of our listeners who are along the South Carolina, North Carolina coast, coastline, hopefully you were able to you know, stay safe, stay relatively dry, get to high ground, whatever it took. Um, and um, the thing about people that live out there, I've discovered, is they're hardy people. <laughs> 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 and they don't leave. It's, it's I would leave, but a lot of people don't. And they haven't for the history of the world. So, um right. They, I don't. I guess they don't see any reason to begin leaving now. So, well, thank God for those people. <laughs> yeah, they're just they're, they're putting they're just like taking the bear and the brunt of it, and then you know, storm can't can't. Get I mean, I'm over here literally trying to figure out what will I do with my books if water gets in the house. Like that is what's keeping me awake at night. <laughs> I did think about this too, and I thought if I lived mm-hmm. there, I wouldn't evacuate without putting every book in like <laughs> waterproof bags, individual <laughs> Ziploc bags. <laughs> And then like, you spend two years chasing down because you got your address in there in each book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, like I feel, like, I feel like this is about to turn into the latest Hallmark movie. Like one man tries to retrieve his 3,000 books. <laughs> he goes on and knocking door to door. Have you seen this book? <laughs> I would totally do that. That sounds perfect. You should do that. I can just see your little, your house, all the little books and individual bags bobbing along outside. Right? Down the street. It actually just sounds a lot more like Winnie the Pooh. I know. I was just thinking about Winnie the Pooh too. And I'm also thinking about your neighbor across the street. It's like Linda or something. Uh, or Nancy or some kind of name like that. Linda. It's Linda, right? And she... Some name like that. (laughs) (laughs) I could... 
I could see her like, you know, going down the road, retrieving your books and then holding them hostage for Karis to yes. come get. Yes. I'll trade you for a Christmas decoration. Pretty much, pretty much. Like, Linda is my like 70 year old neighbor across the street that my 13 year old daughter is locked into like a death match with in terms of who has got the most festive holiday decoration. No, it's like a sitcom episode it's it that's not an so exaggeration like, like Karis will walk outside and they come in just like enraged I'm like what's happened she's like three shamrocks mom three what is it trying to pull three shamrocks we have to go to the store right now because we don't have enough shamrocks and i'm just like whoa you need to take it back or not it's good to be a little competitive but yeah i totally imagine like angelina's the, the hallmark story of and the one woman's with her library that's exactly it well speaking of romance we're here to talk about crossing to safety um Again, it's chapters four and five. Uh, before we do that, though, don't forget about The Daily Poem and The Place, The Thing, um, two other shows from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Subscribe, rate, review. Hope you're listening. Um, for those of you who have been listening, thank you for doing so. And of course, thanks to everyone who has been supporting the Close Reads Podcast Network through Patreon. Don't forget that if you are supporting us on Patreon, not only do you get some cool stuff, but you also get access to conference talks delivered at this previous previous conference that happened in July from Tim and Angelina and I think Heidi's are up there as well. So um, you get those as well if you're a Patreon supporter of any amount. So I'm just going to throw that out there and leave it there and let it, you know, float there for a while while we talk. Um, Crossing the safety. I don't like a float metaphor. Inappropriate. (laughs) Ill-timed. I'm still still like my heart's palpitating at the thought of my books floating down the street. So no flooding metaphor. Speaking of um, floating though, this book keeps harkening back to chapter one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in chapter four, he has this um, little prologue to chapter four where he imagines that he's at a camp. Well, he is at a Cambridge dinner party, but he imagines that he's having this debate with this, sociologist um and at the end of it um he he begins to talk about the idea of being always headed somewhere mm-hmm. and do you guys think that this you know we've got this imagery of the fish rising to the top um the idea of him headed being go, being um, headed somewhere um he says his um but even in our most depressed times, I was a cork held under. My impulse was always up. Um, mm-hmm. At the end of that section, it hit me that things were all together other than what they had been for a long time. Wherever it was that we were going, we had arrived or at least come into the clear road. Um, there's a number of other references to it in these two chapters. Um, certainly, it's a callback to the, to the trout metaphor at the beginning. Do you think that this is, I mean, what is this, what is this novel saying about that theme? Like, um, he's saying we felt like we had arrived. Um, I was headed somewhere. There's this, you know, charity's always wanting, she's always thinking about where they're headed, um, what they're going to accomplish. Um, Sid feels kind of stuck between that. And Larry's thinking, you know, what's the next thing that I have to do to progress through this sort of life that we've chosen? What is the, so what is the novel saying about this, this theme, do you think? Okay, well, I'll go. I'll go first. Um, Did I ramble long enough for you guys to think? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, well, first of all, 
this was my favorite chapter of the book. I enjoyed this chapter. I felt like things are starting to come together. So I was pretty excited about that. And I did feel like the metaphor was coming together. So I'm actually glad you asked that question because that's what I was thinking about last night as I was reading it. Quick aside, um, this is my favorite chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, very too. good. So I really, really enjoyed Very rich with the metaphors and I felt like things were coming together. So uh, I, I thought I saw way more explicitly the connection between Larry and Charity, both of them having ambitions, both of them being driven, both of them wanting to rise. Um, and and that that I sort of understood that that would naturally put those two characters in conflict with one another, right? Um, and then it was so fascinating to me as I went through this chapter to see that Larry and Charity are consistently associated with movement and Sally and Sid with non-movement stillness, right? So Sally literally cannot move. She's crippled, but Sid doesn't want to move either. He doesn't want ambition. He wants the life of the poet. He wants the contemplative life, which is the still life. Um, so I, I, I thought that was really interesting how they were all coming together more clearly. I mean, we've already talked about Sid and Sally being kind of connected and Larry and charity, but I felt like it came much clearer in this section about specifically in what way. And so, um, and, and that metaphor at the beginning of this chapter where Larry is upset, right? Um, he's upset because he wants the guy to make a decision about, is it upward movement or downward movement? Mm -hmm. And that really brought things together for me in this book, because we are constantly going forward and backwards. That is the tension within Larry, right? That's why Larry's in conflict with charity because they don't agree on the, the, the way the movement should be going, but they both want to move. Um, And of course that's mirrored by the, the, the structure of the novel, right? Like he's going into yes, the present time, exactly. then he's going back and you're never exactly sure yes. when he's writing or when he's narrating. Right. So I, so I began to see the way in which the metaphor and the form and all was coming together. So yes, the way the story is, is plot wise moving forwards and backwards. Uh, it's starting to come together for me. I think, I think I'm seeing, um, I think, I think my hope that Stegner was going to bring it all together uh, might end up being a, a good, a good hope that will be satisfied. But uh, there were some other things about this chapter I like too, but I'll hold off about that. But that I loved this movement and the forward and movement. And also I can see how that opening question of Larry being so angry with make up your mind, is it forward or backward movement that that is his own internal struggle, right? Um, yeah, it's his imagination you know, having the debate. Right, right. Am I moving forward or am I moving backwards? And and that seems to be the way that he thinks about life. But that is also the way Charity thinks about life, right? So even when Sid has reached the goal of tenure, there's the conversation of, is she going to let him stay there or is she going to want to push him more? But that's also the way Larry thinks. Mm. Mm. I love the idea that, he, like, the line where Sally is talking to, to, to Larry about Sid and charity. And he says, they're talking about, you know, they're talking about how um, Sally is learning Italian so fast. And he mm-hmm. said, you're going to know Italian before Sid does. You're gonna be able to read Dante. And she's like, well, let's not don't, don't tell him that if it happens. And he says, you're, she says to him, you're a producer. He's a consumer, a sort of connoisseur. And that yes, produce, yes, that producer, is, there's an, there's an action to producing, right? Like the, her assessment identifies what you what you're saying. It identifies that Larry is a man of action. He's a man that he produces things, and that's how he uh, both um, enjoys life. Like we see that throughout the whole chapter, right? Like his greatest pleasure is not necessarily from going around and looking and staring at pic- paintings and stuff. It's the mornings when he is imaginatively creating something, when he's do- he's participating in the creative action. 
But yes, and know, then turns around and he's angry with Charity for doing the exact same thing at the end of the chapter, right? She wants to do something for this guy. And then Larry's oh, yeah. irritated. That, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Heidi, what do you think? I agree with everything y'all are saying. And I this also is my very, very favorite chapter, uh, particularly, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, their meditations and contemplations of art and how that helps them understand the Piero's Christ thing was just... As like a sublime moment for me to read that mm. whole section. But this, to your point that you brought up, David, and that you elaborated on, Angelina, uh, this idea of emerging to the surface, uh, that there's kind of two levels of that. One is with memory. Um, as, as Larry writes this contemplation of uh, this relationship and the history of it, there's this sense from the first chapter on that, that there's this upward mobility, this emerging into clarity and self-knowledge and forgiveness and a deeper ability to love these people who have both been good to them and also failed them. So uh, there's that. And then there's also like, you, you both pointed out this natural buoyancy to his temperament that he's, it's a good word. I, I, yeah. And he, he talks about um, being like a cork that you try to push him under and he pops back up again. Uh, yeah. And I, I liked that a lot. Um, but along with that, uh, and I think Angelina, you were saying this, um, the idea of the moving forwards and backwards, uh, there's also this constant sense of tension with Larry's memories and contemplations, uh, between this natural buoyancy and upward mobility and emerging, and also this sense of just palpable frustration that of the inability to change himself and others um, that there's to your point, David, it is part of his essential nature to be moving. Mm. Right. So there's even a sense of stasis in that, right? Like I always have to be moving, so I can't ever not be moving. Yeah. Right. So I can't ever not come up. He probably is tapping his foot the whole time he writes. Right. Like I can't stay in the depths the way that Sid can, like, I can't stay under. I have to always be coming up. I have to always be creating something. Charity has to always be helping somebody or fixing something. And, uh, and Sally can't do anything. And, and that must, I have to fix that. I have to try to comfort her and I have to take care of her. And like, there's just this sense of always, almost a sense of frustration in the stasis of always having to be in motion, right? That they, the essential nature doesn't change even what I think the phrase uses not even a bit of punctuation over the course of this relationship, over the course of life, we have never been able to change each other. So what we are left with is either rejection or forgiveness. Mm. So that's his, that's, that's his meditation is how to get there. Right. Mm. So to Angelina's point, there still is a sense of tension between the constant movement and then the inability to change. And I, I think that's what makes this so brilliant. I think that that plays out too in like in, for example, some of the more poignant scenes between Sally and Larry. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, he talks a lot about the idea of like possibilities, possibilities that are like cut off. So even like there's some scenes that are sort of romantic, right? And right. there's a hint at like, where like the romantic impulses get cut off because not because like it's not possible or whatever, right? Um, and so like 
that seems to represent that in some ways as well. Um, like, well, yes, I li- think that got played out in the metaphor of the different weights hanging around his neck. Right. Mm-hmm. So is she a weight holding him down and keeping him from moving up and surfacing? Uh, the debt was a weight holding him yeah. down. Um, so yeah, yes. Just to agree with everything you're saying, I think that that played out with a lot of different metaphors that he wants to move. He wants to go up and there are different things that he feels like are weighing him down. Yeah. And I love how like the metaphor can play itself out um, thematically. But one of the things that I love about Stegner is the way the metaphors not only play themselves out like thematically over the long haul, but the individual specific moments, like individual scenes say the same thing as the metaphor does that's being played out throughout the whole thing. Yeah. The so, like, the actions, yeah. The, like the, the specific actions of the scenes yes. represent that. And that's the difference to me between a great novel and a great novelist and you know a good one right um so but but do you think that he is being that stegner here is being um uh what do you think his perspective on this idea of being headed somewhere is does he seem like a positive thing to him (sighs) Well, again, that I think goes to the question of negative capability of the author, right? Are we seeing Stegner's perspective? Are we seeing Larry's perspective? And from what I've read about the novel, it is a bit autobiographical, but I guess we can't know. We can look at how the characters view it, which I think is... Well, okay, let me ask it this way then. Sorry. Yeah. Do you think that the tone of the novel suggests that being headed somewhere is a positive thing is it suggestive suggestive of positive response to that theme to that idea or a negative one or a neutral one no. i don't think a novel can make oh, oh. a neutral statement about to do like that oh yeah i i i think it's completely negative hmm. say more you... oh well i mean can you it's just so that clear. <laughs> i think it's just so clear that uh Sally and Sid are are the, I don't want to say heroes, but um, the most sympathetic characters. Their ability to be still, they're more peaceful, and they're they're being dragged along by these other characters. And uh, I think a lot of Larry's projection and frustration toward charity is probably his own self loathing and, and questioning about his own um, motivations and, and ambitious drive. It's it's so interesting to me that he finds distasteful in her the things that are like him, hmm. um, but th- that's true for a lot of people. But yeah, oh gosh, no, I and and I, you know, <laughs> it's one of these things where I personally find ambition so I'll be kind and say distasteful, but there are stronger words that I could use uh, that I just I can't bear it to see characters associated with this drive and ambition and being contrasted to two characters who I think have the capability to be content and happy and joyful if they were just left alone. Um, those are those are the characters I like. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Sid is not being his charity's ambition is is not letting Sid be who he is it is going against sid's nature you know um i don't think the opposite of ambition is sloth which a lot of people want to want to juxtapose those not at all i think the opposite of ambition is contentment and um uh, you know tending your own garden that kind of thing instead of thinking you've got to make the whole world your garden um 
So, yeah. So, so I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if my, my personal uh, feelings about this are, are being uh, involved as well, but, but I, but I do think consistently Sally and Sid are, we're supposed to feel sympathetic toward them more so than, than Larry and Charity. Mm. Although I don't think we're supposed to dis, I, mean, I don't think we're supposed to hate any, no one's a villain in this book. I don't, I don't mean right. that. Right. Well, Heidi, what do you think? Do you think the book is offering a different perspective on the idea of going somewhere? I think the book leaves open the possibility of readers like Angelina to uh, form their own conclusions based on the experiences of these characters. Um, you know, just like we do in real life, which, which as Angelina said, uh, she finds that personally distasteful. And when she sees people doing those things, she responds that way. And other people might look at an ambitious person and respond in a positive light. And so I, I do think that the book leaves that possibility intentionally open. And that's the risk to your point, David, of writing a great novel, right? Um, and is it the interpretation of that in terms of the emotional response is, you know, is, is up to each particular reader. I, I don't, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that's what Stegner is saying. I, I look at on page 267 after the issue or after the, um, anecdote with the, the man with the mangled hand, yeah. And the various responses of the characters to that, which was very revealing and significant in the novel. Um, and then Larry asks Sally, when you remember today, what will you remember best? The spring countryside and the company of friends or Piero's Christ and that workman at the mangled hand. And she thought a minute, all of it, she said, it wouldn't be complete or real if you left out any part of it, would it? Go to the head of the class, I said. And I think... I think that is the closest, that little exchange is the closest thing you can get to a thesis of this novel. Hmm. Everything I think comes to that moment. And to Angelina's point, it's Sally uttering that wisdom, but it also seems to be one that Larry is affirming. And if you uh, contrast, compare and contrast these two marriages and there could be lots of reasons for this. Sid and Charity have a very different dynamic and level of happiness and contentment with each other, even though Larry is somewhat like Sally. Um, excuse me, Larry is someone like Charity. There's a different level of tenderness there than, than at least what we see between Charity and Sid. So I'm not ready to say that Stegner is casting judgment on the kind of person that Larry and Charity are. Yeah, I don't see the connection you're making at all between that scene and and the the theme of ambition. Like I do think well, that that Well, did you go to the head was, of the class line though? Well, yeah, but that to me was more revealing about why he chose to tell the story in the way that he did and is now the answer to the question he posed in the earlier chapter about why am I always showing the bad scenes of charity? I don't I don't see how that is connected to the to I agree. The I think it's theme. A, I think that it's in a redemption of memory though. And, and until that point, there's so much of a casting judgment upon charity from him and the tone markedly changes in some ways from that point forward, I think in the way that he speaks about the level of compassion with which he speaks about charity, but I agree with you. I don't think that that little sentence at all, that little, that, that sentence at all is about ambition, but I think it is directly about the question that David asked which is what does Stegner say 
what can we say what Stegner is saying about, um, I can't remember how you phrased it, David, do you? Cause it was about getting the, somewhere or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see how that's related to that either. You're going to have to break it down. I'm, I'm not tracking with you at all. I think he's talking about the memory, the good and the bad together. Well, yes, I agree with that, but I don't understand the connection between that and David's question of what is Stegner saying about wanting to get somewhere in the world? Um, maybe because that's so much of the negative connotation he's had about charity is the control in order to get somewhere. And now he seems to be saying, no, I'm ready to engage in the good and the bad of it and, and not cast one over you the mean other. Because, because you're going to include everything. You're going to include the, yes. the mangled hand and you're going to include the, the, uh, what did he say? The spring countryside and the company. Of right. Right. Cause I guess I'm conflating all of charity's issues into your question in some ways. Okay. I'm um I'm intrigued by the I don't know what the word is the uh, I guess definition of ambition um which we could have a whole episode where we discuss that I suppose um because I've never I've until now I've never talked about ambition or heard anyone say ambition is a negative thing um like oh come inherent, in my circles of close it, friends we it, all despise ambition well but i've never it's what, like, it's what you, unites us but if you look it up in the dictionary which i just did there's nothing there's no negative connotation about it so i'm so for me that's like now i gotta rethink the way this book what this book is saying about ambition because if me it, and Matt Bianco actually had a conversation about that on facebook several several of us were talking we're all in the anti-ambition corner if, but, but what, so but what is ambition? Cause I think that this plays into what this book is about then. So what is ambition in your mind? Well, I've said this in an earlier episode. Okay. So I think that ambition is different than vocation. So something, so for example, to, well, to try okay. to, so to try to recognize what are the gifts that God has given me and what are the responsibilities that come with that gift? And then wanting to use that gift in whatever way God wants me to, that's vocation. Right. Um, I think that ambition starts with the idea of where you want to go and then you try to go to that place and it does not take into account your nature, God's calling. Um, and so you end up with ambitious people who are frustrated because they never they never made it to the place that they thought they should make. Um, when I would say maybe your goal was wrong all along, like, you know, um, if, if I'm, if I'm a gifted runner, right. And I, and I, so I want to use that gift. I'm going to use an example. That's not at all me. Right. If I'm the fastest woman in the world. And so I run races, you know, for the, the famous line from Eric Little in the chariot of fire, you know, I feel like I'm doing the will of God. I'm pleasing God when I run fast, you know, using the gift that you have is pleasing God. That's different than if I woke up one day and said, I'm going to be the world's fastest runner. That is my goal. That's my ambition. And I will not be happy unless I achieve that because you, that might not be something that is achievable. That might be something that is against your nature. That might be not the way God intends for you to use your gifts. And I perceive a lot of modern anxiety and tension that we have over this issue of ambition versus vocation, right? Um, so a lot of stay-at-home moms will get um, a lot of criticism because people say you need to have more ambition than that. Whereas the stay-at-home mom is saying, but this is my vocation. This is the calling I've been given. And this is how I'm going to delight in myself and the gifts and, and God's going to take 
pleasure in me. So I'm making a lot of fine distinctions. I think that anybody who's like, my goal is X and I won't stop till I get that, that that, that is vaulting ambition. Like, I don't, I mean, Shakespeare condemns ambition so much. I, I'm having a hard time knowing how it is that you could think ambition is not criticized. I mean, Macbeth is all about vaulting ambition. His ambition is to murder the king and it destroys everything. Destroys him, almost destroys the kingdom. But that's because um, that ambition was d- disordered. Ambition, what I'm saying is I don't think that ambition inherently is a disorder. Because, I can't see it as anything other than... Well, but if you... See, but I think when you're comparing vocation and ambition, I think you're comparing like a pear and like a tree. It's not apples and oranges to me. So like, um, or actually I shouldn't say a pear and a tree because a pear grows on a tree, but like a pear and a shoe. <laughs> um, <laughs> because so like to me, ambition is, is not synonymous with... Uh, um, to, so like to me, ambition is what, what encourages you to fulfill your vocation to the best of your abilities. So you're, I see, you, yeah, I don't agree with that, but yeah, I can see that that's how you're using it. So like, but like, but like etymologically, I don't understand why it, how it, where you, um, so what I'm saying is you can explain it to me. I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, like, I don't see how it's in opposition to vocation. Like, I don't see like where those two things, like vocation is the idea of like something that you're called to do. And well, for me, it has to do with it. Yeah. Convinces you, what drives you to do things to the best of your ability. Like that's the definition of it. Right. I see that that's how you're using it. For me, when I see an ambitious person, they are always trying to control the outcome. But aren't you just naming a certain kind of person with a specific word then? I don't mean that. As, I don't mean that as a criticism. I'm because I'm, I'm trying to understand the word myself too, because I want to use the right words when I'm talking about what I'm, because I might be doing the same thing as what I'm saying, you know, like I might be saying, identifying a specific thing and using a specific word to name that. So I'm not saying that you're wrong to do that. I'm just trying to identify because I think that it has a lot to do with this book. That's why the only reason that I pursued this right. idea. Um, that was, again, so, that's not meant to be a criticism. That's a question. No, 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 no. And I, I hear you were wrangling with how to define this. I'm, I'm not taking it as a, as a disagreement. I, I like to, I, it's good for us to be refined in, in the way we define things. And, and I'm, I'm willing to be corrected if I'm using it wrong. So, you know, I would say that I am not an ambitious person and that that is a true statement. And I would say that what makes me not ambitious is that I do the thing I think I am asked to do in the moment. And then I let the chips fall where they may. And I have well, no ambition to even be the best mother that ever lived. I'm just going to be the best mother that I can be. And I don't think that there's any, I guess what, I would, what do you call I would, the desire to write the, like the book that you're writing, you're going to try to write that book to the, like the best, make it the best book you possibly can. So what does that drive or that urge? How do you name that? Oh, I would name it with a crushing sense of duty and responsibility. There's no ambition at all in it. It is gut-wrenching and painful so, and horrible. And if I didn't think God wanted me to do it, I'd walk away right now. Yeah, that's, I, think that, I think you're a writer. Um, <laughs> exactly. exactly that's exactly, so, I have to tell the story I have in me and it might kill me. I relate to Flannery O'Connor so much. <laughs> so what's, what's the difference between aspiration and ambition for you? Is there? I wouldn't, I don't like the word aspiration either. What about drive? 
or zeal? I think, I think drive. <laughs> oh, I'm also anti-zeal. I'm very anti-zeal. If I'm so what, still so extremely what do you, what unattractive. Did, okay, so the idea. Well, but you, but like, so so when when I hear you talk about books, though, I would say that you're like. I would describe the the energy, the enthusiasm that you describe books with as zealous. Like you're, you've a zealous enthusiasm mm-hmm. in some ways. And I don't mean that. Like to me, that's not. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I think that there's a some in some ways it's just that individual. The words come from context, right? So like, I would be more comfortable being called a zealous person than an ambitious. I would take it as a huge insult if someone said I was ambitious. Well, I would so take but, it as a huge, so when you huge you're writing a talk or you're writing the book and you're saying it's a duty, right? Mm-hmm. But the, but, but so it's, so you do that to the best of your ability, um, simply because, um, I don't mean simply like, as in, this is a small thing. I mean, primarily because out of sort of the virtuous pursuit of just some, you just think you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. There's not, but like, if you love doing it, I mean, if you love the things that you're writing about, then don't you want to honor those things? I mean, is that just duty that you're, that that is? Well, well, I don't think duty has to be dead. So I guess, okay, maybe this will help to explain it. When I think about finishing the book, I literally think about finishing the book. I think about mm-hmm. nothing that will happen after that. I just feel like when it's done, I can face God and say, I did it. It's done. And then so, whatever the desire happens, to write a good book is not ambition to you. Oh no, that would be, I would, uh, the, 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 the pressure that aside, I feel. Aside from whatever response people give to it. Right. No, the, 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 so the sense, the, the almost soul crushing sense of responsibility I have is that I want to write a good book, not because it will be a feather in my cap, but because I want to honor the message, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think about what will happen after. I don't think about if anybody will read it. Like that's almost, this is why I have business people in my life. They think about, will anybody read it? I, I, yeah, that's I why I read, I'll read it. <laughs> that's right. But I can't, I can't think about that. My very favorite artists will talk about that, right? Like they can't think about who's going to, who's going to like this album. Yeah, they can yeah, only yeah. think, do I like the music that I'm producing? Um, right. um, I mean, so, I just read an article from my favorite songwriter about that. where he was talking about the deliberate, simple life and how he has, he rejects ambition. Um, and he could play bigger venues, but he won't because it's all about what will keep me content and what will keep me happy. And, and so he, he stays very focused to the ideal. And I think that's true about me. Um, and I think that Sid want that that's who Sid is. I think Sid wants to be committed to an ideal. Um, mm-hmm. to me, that is not the same thing as an ambition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go turn over to Heidi then. So Heidi, when you, I'm, I, this, I'm not saying that you need to like decide that one of us is right or wrong here. <laughs> um, that's not at all what I'm saying. But when you think of the idea of ambition, like when you look at a, a Larry or a charity or someone like that, do you look at, do you look at them and say, Oh, their ambition is, or whatever, you know, whatever word we're going to use is um, like, do you look at that as a virtue or do you look at it as a flaw? Like, do you think of ambition as drive and energy, or do you think of it as the desire to be loved by the world? That's a good question. I think that, um, I do tend to think of ambition as in the generic sense and the morally neutral sense, and that it can like, you know, like talent or riches or whatever be applied 
for the towards the pursuit of virtue or towards the pursuit of sin and self and death. Uh, and so I do tend to have more of your definition. So morally of it, neutral and less depend. I do think until, it until it's incarnated somehow. Exactly. Uh, but what I hear from Angelina, I think is valid and fair because it is a word that I think is fairly ambiguous to Angelina's point. It is uh, the, it is disordered in Macbeth um, for lots of different reasons that he, obviously he incarnated it through murder. He, he had an ambition to be the king. It was, he incarnated it through murder to your point, David. Can so, there be but, degrees what, of ambition? Certainly. And I think, wait, say but, that again. Can there be what? Degrees of ambition. Right. And I like, I really actually like, I'm thinking, sitting here, been sitting here thinking as you guys were talking about the, um, the idea of the distinction, the fine distinction, as Angeline said, between ambition and vocation. And I, I've never thought of ambition as being primarily positive or primarily negative. I do think of it as morally neutral, but I think as the, the potential sin of it is obviously, as Angelina pointed out, really clear and very destructive because ambition, misapplied ambition disordered has to include comparison with others, self-glorification, self-aggrandizement, mm-hmm. yeah. control, um, those things, and which are very destructive to the soul of the ambitious person and to the lives of others. And so right. to have a visceral response to ambition, I think is fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, yeah, I didn't go. go yeah. Ahead. Yeah. So, but, and I know that's not what you were saying. Um, no, I'm, so I'm, I hear, I'm trying to understand, just to understand definition and figure out, you know, make sure right. what we're talking about. It is a definition of terms issue. Absolutely. But I like the, the, I really have just been sitting here thinking about the issue of vocation and I'm looking at Sid and Larry specifically. Um, in this novel, to bring it back to the novel, that Sid, you know, I was I was going to ask you, Angelina, would you say that Sid is ambitious to be a poet? And based on your definition, absolutely not. He wants to fulfill his vocation, the thing that he is great at, the thing that he loves and can do well in order. He wouldn't obviously put it in the Christian context the way that we would, but that's not ambition. That's just vocation. I, I hear that. And so I think I'm wondering if that's what Larry is doing since he has that naturally upwardly mobile and buoyant um, temperament. And since he has this tender and sweet marriage, is it possible that he's applying it in many ways? Well, according to his nature, even though it's different from Sid's, I would say, yes. What would you say, Angelina? I suppose I would say Larry's looks different than Charity's. Um, sure. But there is a certain, I don't, okay. So I, I would say that Larry's desire to write is a vocation. He clearly thinks like a storyteller um, mm-hmm. and, and it flows out of him in a way that feels like this is a vocation and a calling. But when he talks about his great need for upward mobility that that feels grasping to me in those in those scenes like like Sid wants wants to write the poem to write the poem if no one reads it it doesn't matter he just wants to write the poem um but Larry talks more about how much money he will make with the thing and that kind of stuff yeah this is getting at I think one of the the internal tensions that that Mm -hmm. plays into how I think about this idea because I think that 
the the idea of disordered ambition or degrees of ambition to me is key because yes because i think ambition the idea of desiring to do something really well like having drive can be can be to can be to the extent that it becomes a desire to 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 um define to it to become something of how you define yourself as opposed to something you produce so like in macbeth it's disordered to such a degree because he and lady macbeth want to define themselves differently than they already are like they don't have a clear understanding of their place if they understood their place then their ambition would be to do that thing the best that they could in this case i think what you get is in his own work larry's own work you get a tension on both of those two things because he wants he has the drive he has a drive to fulfill his talents and produce the best novels that he can produce right but then on the other hand there is a sense of disorder in that because he is seeking to get rich but or to do well for himself or whatever you want to say but also that is tied to the idea of not wanting to 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 an honorable idea of not wanting to be beholden i think or to have to um uh how, how to put it have to um be a burden to other people. Like I right. don't get the sense from Larry that he wants to be well off simply as a matter of um, like status. No, right. I would agree with that. There's something else driving him for that. Yes, I would. I would and there's a, there, but there's a fine line there. Completely, I completely admit that. Like you can you can start out by wanting to just not be beholden to people, and then you become Jay Gatsby. Well, so. he doesn't have the same sacramental kind of transcendent connection the way that Sid does with the world. And he envies that. Well, envies is a morally loaded word. He desires that. He's drawn <laughs> yeah. to that in Sid. Drawn to it, I think, is great. Like, yeah. yeah, that's better. It's attractive to him. He is, mm-hmm. Yes. And he learns from it, but he can't attain it because that is not the way his mind is oriented. He is as that it's the difference between a producer and a connoisseur. I and loved that. I know exactly I which one I am. Too. I loved that too. Well, I, I know exactly I, which one I am so much that I thought the idea of producer was also distasteful. Well, and I think that that though does, if I am going to challenge anything, I, I would say, but like uh, that is the thing that Sid offers to Larry, but Larry is also, I mean, Larry is also has a transcendent image of God in him too. Right. And so, um, I, I don't cast judgment on the producer. And I think the connoisseur is a beautiful soul and so, so is the producer. And when I see what's, what Larry is doing is he's just writing because he's a producer. He does want to make money, but he doesn't seem to connect to this. He's just doing it, right? He's so thankful he's not a hack anymore. He can't wait. He can't wait to get there and to absorb in the afternoon so that he can create in the morning. And I think there's a holiness to that as well. And for him, for him, I've always tied his ambition, shall we say. The thing is, I've never really thought about that word and I've never used that word to describe him. But it, since we started, I'm going to keep using it. Um, it like there's a, his ambition is tied to the idea of discovery. Right. I don't think he's ambitious at all. I, I wouldn't use that word to describe Larry. I would use the word driven or compelled to produce. But ambitious... Maybe when I heard, I don't know that I. It, that. Yeah, maybe when Angelina had said that, my response was in in my mind like the idea of ambition is about drive, and then it becomes about degree and about right about order. So then I was responding right. to what Angelina was saying, and I was trying to understand where 
you know, I think part of it is how words are used around us, right? Yes. Right. I, yes. I would not have For thought our whole lives. that in the book, I did not think that Larry was ambitious. I don't actually know that I would have used the word ambitious to describe Larry but before this conversation, but um, right. I didn't either. become concerned about that until in this section when he kept talking about his intense desire for upward mobility. Yeah. Um, do you think, so, okay, then that brings us back to the question. We talked about what Stegner thinks, but but is he is he contemplating or reflecting on his own, um, how did he put it, his own sense of being headed somewhere? Does, do you think he, when he looks back at that, he he seems to be saying, like judging himself for that, or does he seem to be praising himself for that? There's some, there were some interesting moments where he is aware that he's neglecting Sally as he works. Um, I don't think a truly ambitious person would worry about that. <laughs> right. Like he's not so committed to the production of this art that he forgets that there are other loves that require his attention. Right. Um, so I, I, I think that Larry, I, I wouldn't be surprised if at the end, the whole book is really less about charity and more about what Larry figures out about himself. So um, I, I, I feel like he's yeah, wrestling. I feel like he's wrestling with how to think about himself. And that a lot of that comes out in being upset with charity. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're getting a first person, not a first person narrator and by the end of it, he hasn't, he hasn't learned something about himself and you haven't learned something about him too. Then it's, what's the point of Why would you ever have the first person narrator? <laughs> right. And I think so a microcosm of that is the scene with the man with the mangled hand. He's yeah. very irritated with charity for jumping out of the car and being like, don't let him go. And, and, and all of that. And then when they get back, you know, there's the admission that, he was so angry because he's angry at himself that maybe he didn't do the right thing. Maybe he should have gone after the guy. Um, so again, I, that, to me, that all speaks to so much of his frustration with charity is really his own frustration with himself. And it gets projected onto her. But I mean, she's behaved in a way that's made him doubt he did the right thing. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about that, this book is the way individual scenes get read. So like <laughs> this time when I read that scene, I read that whole scene as being much more about charity's anger than Larry's anger. And it's just, huh. the, so the things that we tend to like feel, and I think he's setting the scenes up to be that way. Like, he, and there, well, and that's something very sort of modern, yeah. like does that's the, you know, this is very updikean type thing to do. Um, even DeLillo, um, some of his contemporaries, but like, you don't come away from that scene. I don't come, I did. I, I come away from that scene each time I read it focusing on some different responses. Like the scene isn't written from one specific, well, it's written from a specific perspective, but it's not, I don't believe written for you to feel a certain way without any doubts about a character or to, to know exactly how they feel. I can't get out what I'm trying to say here because I've read it before where I focus, where I notice her response. And then I've read it where I notice his response. And I've this time I read it and I didn't, Sally the whole time to your point and I'm making your point for you all I could think about was Sally that whole scene mm. yeah sitting in the backseat by herself next to this guy with the mangled hand and, and how everybody who suffers fight can connects with her because of the outward sign of her own suffering and that so uh, to your point I think it is written so that you can see a scene from multiple perspectives depending on the contemplation of the reader at the moment right and what they're thinking about and how they've interpreted it. 
So anyway, I, I say that to support what you're saying. Well, I think, and for me, I think this time I've read it before, right? So mm-hmm. as I'm reading it, I can, you know how I said last week that in a lot of these scenes with charity, I would not have been the person mm-hmm. like charity and I never would have been friends because I would have, I would have, well, I would have needed my wife to tell me to not argue with her. <laughs> so every time I read it, I'm sitting here. Like I, I find that I find myself recognizing that in myself where as I'm reading it, I'm thinking someone needs to sh- just make her stop talking. <laughs> and so I'm thinking about, that's just been my instinct this time as I've read it. And it's been a few years since I read it. So I don't know if I would have read it the same way then, but I'm, I'm so I, I'm kind of fascinated by the way mm-hmm. that's informing the way that I'm reading it this time. And I'm trying to be on, you know, read it without any preconceived notions and just kind of take it all in. But, and, but I'm also trying to recognize what I'm seeing, like I'm trying to recognize my own, instinctive responses to it. Um, and so I wonder if, you know, if that's playing a big factor and why, you know, like my prejudices or whatever in real life are they are just coming out in the way that I'm responding to that character. You know, I wonder mm-hmm. if this book more than other books lends itself to that sort of thing. I feel like that's been yeah, an that echo be. in yeah. our conversation that we, we all are bringing. I mean, everyone brings their own experience to every book that they read, but some books are lend themselves more to that in, in the ambiguity of it. I mean, we right, all bring yeah. our own experiences to the Iliad and yet the Iliad will be much less affected by our own personal experience and how we read it than, than a book like this would be. That's true. I think this yeah. book is also about, it's so much less about kind of like what happens. It's so much more about individual, like very specific moments in these people's lives. And so our own tastes, if you will, are going to, come into play in that specific scene like we don't we're not we don't discuss we haven't discussed at all like plot (laughs) um you know Mm -hmm. whereas yeah or and we've talked about themes and stuff but you like i was noticing how he talks about how all of a sudden they're like really happy that they're both rich and he never (laughs) says how they got he never like really says how they got rich it's just well and he he, says in the next paragraph we're not really rich we're just Yeah, it's just like think, time, time passes, and then it's a scene in which they're in a specific point in their life, right? And well, yeah. and I really would. So I'll have to go look for these individual passages that I marked. But I liked the idea that it was paradise regained, that it was a second chance mm-hmm. to end the exile and to and to re-enter Eden, and and um, and and for Larry that meant not being beholden, so coming in a sense of equality, mm-hmm. um. And, and feeling rich and, and enjoying all of that. Um, there was, there was several places I marked with that second chance theme, mm-hmm. uh, which, so I really, I liked all of that. And, and I liked, so there was a few, so the, so the conversations about art and what makes good art and how do you tell a story? Do you just tell the hopeful moments? Like, is, do you tell the, do you tell Good Friday or do you tell Easter Sunday? Right. Mm-hmm. What's the story you tell? That was essentially the, the question. And Sally says, it's gotta be both. Um, but even, even those conversations and they were about art and they did reflect the way that this story is being told and Larry's narrative choices get explained in that conversation. It's, it's also greater than that. It also has to do with perspective of reality. Um, which also goes to the heart of the different characters and the way that they perceive reality differently. And um, I, I really liked those conversations. I liked that, that they're arguing, do you show the tragedy and the sad and the pain 
Mm-hmm. Or do you show the hope for the redemption and that Larry had put those two things at odds? And Sally said, no, you're wrong to think because charity wants to see the hopeful side of things that that means she doesn't know pain and suffering. So mm-hmm. Larry took this hard thing like, well, she just she just doesn't know what suffering is. That's why she can live in this dream of happiness. And Sally says, no, she she does know what pain and suffering is, but she's choosing to have the hope that be the thing that she focus on. So all of, I liked all how all of that played in on so many different levels. Cause it really, I've been in each of those characters shoes. I have been in the situation with Larry where this, when I was younger, this was totally true where I thought anybody who seemed happy, it's because they didn't know suffering and, and I would be frustrated with them. And of course that is true about some people, but I'm less frustrated about it now. Um, uh, and it, I, 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 so, so, and this connects to that second chance theme. I'm remembering now what I had marked that, that their passage went from being that Faulkner passage. They might whip us, but they're not going to get us down. You know, that whole, like, we can't be whooped. We're going to, we're going to suffer through this, but at least you can't yeah, beat me. And then, yeah. And then that switches to um, the quote from Dante, which is a very hopeful and redemptive quote. Um, and I, so, I mean, I feel like I've gone that arc in, in my own life about just being like, hey, like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, you know, and just holding on to that and then getting to the point where like, no, it, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than we just endured and survived, but it's got to be that we were, we were redeemed somehow. The suffering has to be redeemed to give it meaning. And so I liked all the levels of, of conversation that was going on. And, and, and Larry seems to struggle. <sighs> what, do, what do I want to say? And on a, it's not exactly an emotional level, almost on a psychic level. He suffers with Sally's affliction, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not in a, like you're the millstone around my neck weight, but, but like being aware of the pain that his wife carries, being aware of how brave she is and, and noble she is. And then I guess feeling irritated when he thinks someone's not noticing that or being dismissive of that and wants to remind everybody, there's a lot of pain in the world. Look at my wife. She has all this pain. Um, and so I thought yeah. it was so great how Sally's like, charity knows I'm in pain. She sees that her wanting to be hopeful doesn't mean she doesn't know pain. One of the things I love that's in keeping with what you're saying there is the way he will, in a lot of these moments, he turns and he looks at her and he's, mm-hmm. so he's taking in the moment in the way she takes it in. Right. How is so, Sally perceiving this? Yes. So there's the whole thing where they're arguing they're in front of the, um, the, the what the paint the Piero and um mm-hmm. so he's talking about how charity is developing her sundial theory of art um but then mm-hmm. he says it's you know there's just like a little aside but i noticed that Stal- sally stood a long while on her crutches in front of the painting propped temporarily against a frame of raw two by fours she studied it soberly with something like recognition or recognition or acknowledgement in mm-hmm. her eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As if those who have been dead understand things that will never be understood by those who have only lived. Um, you see it again later on, of course, like when he gets in, he looks in the back seat to see how, Yeah. you know, when a first person narrator reveals something that's not right in front of him that, you know, or that's not just his perspective, that that's not a, that's a, that's a conscious thing. Um, mm-hmm. So I love the way he'll he'll turn to her and kind of take in the scene through her eyes, and he's recognizing how she is how she is feeling, um, and the, like he recognizes in himself the inability to experience it the same way she is. But then, as you said, there is a psychic if, 
I think that was the word you used, sort of the psychic connection between them where he's, he's participating. He, he, like you get the sense he would participate in her suffering even more if he could. And Um, he does in that wonderful scene at the beginning of chapter four, when he's holding her outside and he's in pain so that mm -hmm. she can have this joyful moment. That was beautiful. Yeah, he like he's he's in, he's so cold that he's that it's that it hurts. And his feet are hurting. Like the rocks, are, the, the balcony's cutting into his feet, and but he doesn't say it, and he suffers it. He he literally bears her suffering in that moment, and that was so that was very well done. That was really pretty. And that's and one I of those. Also, oh, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was I was going to say that um, I do feel like things are coming together in this book, and I wouldn't be surprised then if we see at the end here the idea of. Um, Charity's hopeful, optimistic perspective doesn't mean she doesn't know pain. So I expect at the end we'll see that same sort of thing where she doesn't want anybody to cry around her. She's going to make them all be hopeful and happy, but not because she doesn't know pain. I mean, she's about to die. Um, and, and also the idea that she's going to help people even if they don't want it. Mm-hmm. That's what I expect is going to happen at the end of the story, that all these threads will come together. So or she's going she's gonna to be the man walking up the hill with the mangled hand who won't accept the help. Hmm. Oh yeah, it could be that too. I, I you were talking about that scene out on the on the the, mm-hmm. the patio or whatever when she, when, she, when he's you know she says great you're like a, a heating pad, um, and then that that is one of those scenes that you know in another book it turns into a different sort of moment right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and it's like on the verge of that, but then it can't, it doesn't, and you know he says that thing about a hundred what ifs and might've been swung in my skull as the lantern swung in the street. I kissed her. And then that's where you're thinking like, Oh, in another, like again, in another book, Mm -hmm. he keeps doing that this whole book, right? You're expecting this book to be one thing, but these Mm -hmm. moments didn't amount to the things that you're expecting. And I think there's something about that in life, right? Like so often the moments, the way we kind of imagine the wish that they could be, or the way we want to remember them are not the way they actually are. And that Mm -hmm. sometimes the way that they actually are, are better than what could have been. Um, it's because he kisses her on the nose, which is so sweet and affectionate, but not romantic and passionate. And he says, cold nose, healthy mm-hmm. dog. I love that, like the little dichotomy that he puts in there. It's not really a dichotomy. Mm-hmm. You know, he uses that metaphor, but one of them's cold, one of them to, to another, you know, what the coldness representing the health, in other words. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and how that the sudden flood of complex feeling went through me so that I could have groaned and ground my teeth like that. Mm-hmm. That's so human, right? That's just this grief and love and death all entwined in this moment for him. But he, he ends it with this very lighthearted, you know, like you said, Angelina, affectionate, but not passionate. Although because he's still, well, I think there's passion just, there, but then he grinds, he grinds right. it out with his teeth. Yes. <laughs> right. But, but well, yeah. So, I mean, but, it, it wasn't a kiss designed to stir the moment into greater passion. No, right. but he lightens it because he knows she, that's what, it, there's just that's always this sense of Larry's restraint when it comes to Sally constantly throughout the whole novel. And that yeah, is, from the way he interacts with her to the way he describes yes, her. Yes. And speaks about her and that there, yes, but he's always kind of overwhelmed, not kind of, he's the, the complex feeling is yeah. characteristic of of him and his creations and his relationships that's yeah i'm really glad yeah. you go ahead i was just gonna say i'm really glad that heidi mentioned the um 
the grinding of the teeth because mm-hmm. in some way like that that paragraph that one single paragraph you mentioned the idea it's not like passionate or whatever the angelina you did and rightly so but there is like passion and he literally so grinds the passion out of his teeth yes. he grinds exactly it out of himself right. i don't mean to say that he's not passionately in love with sally and doesn't feel passion it's not a brother sister marriage like, right right but just we didn't have the swelling the you know cue the violins and here comes the swelling soundtrack and now we know it's a love scene exactly that, yeah that, that didn't but that, it's deeply romantic at the same oh time. absolutely no, I, 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 they have a very tender relationship. And I guess one of the things I'm thinking word. about, and I'm not, I don't have a conclusion for this. It's just an observation that I wonder if we don't think that Larry and Sally are more tender than um, Sid and Charity because we actually see alone scenes with them. And right. we've right. only seen what? Charity and Sid. And so the one time, the one time that, that Larry does see them alone, it is he's surprised by what the actual dynamic is between them. And that they seem to really delight in one another and be in love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And right. well, I think there's also the sense that like, especially at this point, you know, that it was like, it's like, it's so much easier for them to delight in each other. Mm-hmm. So that's probably a, like a, it like just and i don't mean just like sexually or whatever i mean like in almost every way like their ability to spend mm-hmm. time together is completely easier like if they want to get in the car and go for a drive or go for a walk or like make a meal and set up like the degree to which that is difficult for sally oh, right. everything in their lives that they would have to do has to be like planned and prepared for and they he you know there has to be a you know this the, i'm sure the spontaneity of all kinds is not there and just just the amount and so that's not just something that she's not just in pain but she and she's not just suffering but there's a loss of you know we could call it quality of life if you want but like the sort of po- spontaneity like poetic spontaneity that life often lends itself is gone for them as well that's ironic right because charity's the planner charity's the one who wants to plan and plot every point of her life and yet it's yeah. sally and larry who have to live like that hmm. one of you was going to say something and then let me go i think that was you angelina no, I don't know. <laughs> don't let me, shouldn't let me say anything. No, no. Obviously, it wasn't so pressing. I've already forgotten it. I found one of those lines, though. I was looking for it. You said that the idea of like second chances. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the chapter, there's the thing where it says, at past 40 with a daughter starting college, we could begin now. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know. Um, hey, Heidi, is there anything yeah. you want to talk about before we go? Well, I, I think I was so, is that a question for my final thought? Not necessarily. Because I only we have, have a few two minutes, final but... thought options on my list today. So, <laughs> okay. So one of them now we'll respond to it and save the other one for later. We got I, a few, I we just, got a little bit of time left. I just keep going back to the moment of Piero's Christ, just that. And what a transformative, uh, did you look that up? Anybody? I'm looking at it right now. The, the painting. on my computer the painting the the resurrection of christ i would say our listeners should look it up because it is an incredibly powerful just so powerful um painting that remind you of of uh, parker's back yes it did oh. that's funny that you said that um so so much of this did actually with charity and i i I'd see a lot of comparison between this 
this particular chapter, chapter four, and Flannery O'Connor, not necessarily in style, but this is the chapter I I felt like when Larry goes underneath a little bit into the depths, in spite of it beginning with his uh, meditations mm, on upward that's mobility. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, he begins the chapter saying, I'm a cork and I always have to go to the surface, but there's so much depth in his contemplations in this chapter brought about by relationship in the context of relationship creation, since he's a producer and art, um, his immersion in, um, all of this sacred arts and this cultural experience. And he talks a lot about his self-knowledge growing. We see, I think we see a little more of it. It's not as explicit as maybe some of some readers might want, but there's more to it. There's more nuance. There's, um, there's more forgiveness. There's more meditations on life's sorrows. Um, the complex feelings, the, the, the flood of complex emotion you see woven throughout his meditations in this chapter. I love, I love that. Um, so I, I just, I read this chapter three times mm. and I just thought it was fabulous. I love the way he talks about, um, charity in these chapters with, um, much more, I think grace and lots of adjectives when he's describing how she, um, her smile and her, they could tell that it seemed a little bit like he's trying to make up for the way he's spoken about her for the rest of this novel. She has this life-giving smile and she's so great, but he can't resist kind of throwing in a few judgments here and there. You know, she's the kind of person who can't have a good time without telling us how much of a good time she's having. You know, so there's still like the Larry kind of that frustration with her, but there is an attempt, I think, to depict her with grace at this point. But that's funny because that's another parallel between Larry and Charity. I just so I was reading yeah. um, George Orwell's book. It looks right here. What's it called? Um, Why I Write. Animal Farm. No, why I write? Yes, I was reading Animal Farm. Made me think of Charity and Larry. Because no, uh, why I write? And he talked about how he, so he's going through his whole childhood and how he knew he was called to be a writer. One of the things he mentions is that he had a lifelong habit of narrating his own life. Uh, um, I do the same thing, uh, much to the annoyance of my youngest child, who's like, can we just do something without you talking about how you're doing it? And I said, no, no, we cannot. I'm George Orwell. You're just going to have to roll with it. Um, so that is, but that is the mark of a storyteller is that they're seeing everything as a story unfolding and they're narrating it. And so Charity, Charity is basically doing the same thing Larry does. So again, it's Larry being irritated with Charity for being like him. That's uh, true. Which is, which is so interesting to me. And I, so I found a quote, um, I'm flipping through and I'm seeing my notes. Okay, so not once, but twice, possibly three times, but definitely twice that I remember, Larry talks about having the bends. Mm -hmm. yep. And the bends is when you rise too fast. If you're, you know, scuba diving or whatever, if, if you rise too fast, what is it? If you, if you get up faster than the smallest bubble, the last bubble, then it, you know, you could die. So, so for all his talk about upward mobility, there is also this danger to it, right? He's admitting it. That gives me the bends. Maybe I'm rising too fast. If, if you, so if you rise faster than your oxygen bubbles, it can kill you. Hmm. Yeah, so, that sound great. Yeah, so that was part of the, thank you Radiohead for why I know what the bends is. <laughs> but, nice. It was, was also a metaphor about someone's ambition and rising too fast. So I was, I jumped on that. But um. 
but uh so of the course gr- the great tradition right the gra- well <laughs> hey they were they were very educated don't even get me started but hey, i like radiohead okay so yeah i mean that, not as much as graham but i mean they definitely get a metaphor and bring it through the entire album and so the, the bins that was it, it fits larry here but um okay angelina stay focused if i was in my class now i would like go into like a half hour discussion of all the themes in Radiohead, but I'm going to stay focused. Uh, so, so before our conversation, um, I read this as definitely a warning against ambition. Um, but, but now after all the things that we've talked about, you know, maybe it's just a, a, a warning, a caution against the dangers of ambition that, you, that, that there is a kind of ambition, which is destructive, self-destructive because that's the bins is self-destructive. Mm. Um, that could come from rising too fast. You know, it's it's just, this has been a very interesting conversation because you and Heidi have both said that you thought Macbeth's problem was that he had disordered ambition. I would have said Macbeth is disordered because of his ambition. I would say that his ambition is the disordered thing about him. And it's interesting that two of you were like, no, it's that his ambition is disordered that is the problem. Hmm. We might be, I mean, in the end, there, I mean, I it guess might just be semantics. I mean, you it know, might be semantical sure. gymnastics, sure. yeah. Right. Right. Well, like, well, and I'm thinking so much about that vocation because maybe it's the conflation for Macbeth. Now we're talking about Macbeth, but that he, he had to achieve it himself. He couldn't wait for it to your point, Angelina. What, what if, what if he had waited and seen And that is what I think one of the points is he gets the prophecy. So if it's going to happen, he needs to let it happen. It's It's the fact that they try to force it on their own time frame, right? Take destiny which, into their own hands, make sure it which happens. applies very much to charity with Sid. Yes. Right. Like, and what if she had let him be the sacramental poet that his essential nature called out for him to be? What kind of life could they have led? What, what beauty and grace could have come into their marriage and their children? And how could they have used their wealth and his career could have become a vocation. So anyway, that to I I think that that's just so important. That's interesting. Yeah, it is, and I and I'm and I don't I do not want to. I'm going to say I do not want to overstate the comparison between Charity and Lady Macbeth by any means. <laughs> <laughs> but but that well, maybe said, wait till the end of the book. But that said. <laughs> There is that archetype, right? There is the Lady Macbeth archetype of 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 the of the woman who, uh, you know, <laughs> is the helpmeet of her husband in the wrong sort of way. And I'm thinking, in specifically, of the speeches in which Macbeth is not so sure he wants to do this, and she says, uh, "You're a man, and men um, I'd rather murder my newborn you- baby child." Well, yes, than you- but, yeah, but, just like in, but specifically, it's like and King Lear. Yes, but specifically, what she says that echoes charity is the idea of. This was our arrangement. You gave yeah. your word. Now you have to go through it. And that is definitely charity, charity's position. Hey, this was our arrangement when we got engaged. This was how it's going to be. And now you've got to stick to that. Um, and he kind of does out of duty. Like there's, there's that idea of duty again. Like he, oh, he no, he does. Right. He, he does. Um, I'm really interested though. Well, I don't know why I said though. I just came out of my mouth. <laughs> I'm really interested as well in the, um, like what Heidi was saying about. So in some ways... Charity is holding him back from fulfilling his calling. Oh, I think um, that that's absolutely true. And that's on the why other hand, so, so like, is in some ways it seems like Sally is empowering Larry to fulfill his calling, and in some and in a lot of ways we constantly see her like 
checking him. Like even the right. way checking he the way he he like his arguments with with uh with charity, right? Like she mm-hmm. is kind of a a North star for him or whatever you want, whatever metaphor you want to use. It keeps him on the right track. But at the same time, her, when it comes to his sort of vocation and maybe even his ambition, her, um, her illness, her, her suffering in some ways is almost like a dark grace. It seems like Mm. for, for, to, to restrain his, like, because all the things that he probably tried to work towards, he got held back in some ways. And like that's the idea of the millstone thing, right? Yes, uh, but, but in you this held back case, in the way that frees him. Yes, well, in this case, because literally for those deep sea divers, you know, they're weighted down. Yeah, right, so, right, right, right. So that's a double meaning for Sally as the millstone because she is the person who says the bins the second time. She says, "Are you getting the bins?" So the mm. first time Larry says it, the second time she says it, and he says no. And so now I'm thinking that Sally is a weight. She's the weight that keeps him from getting the bin. She's what's keeping him. She's like a counterweight. Idea, yes, this idea that you're saying that she checks him. She's what's keeping him from rising too fast. Mm. Mm. And I, so I know that um, like Stegner was in his other books, for example, he's, he calls them boomers and stairs or something like that. And he, he believe, he considers it not just not a good thing, but a, ver- a vice. The boomers are a vice. People who are always trying to go on to the next place because there's more opportunity there. That's what I thought. Uh, if he was um, Wendell Berry's teacher, he must be feeling he's like a, he, place yeah. is good. And then the ironic thing, though, know, is that he spent his entire life on the move virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he felt that tension because he felt the sense there's a virtue in staying in a place and committing to it. But then he, but then he was dragged to so many different places. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes it wasn't even by his own choice. Um, so, but that's, but even if it's not your own choice, right? You feel the tension, right? Even, people who have to move around all the time, they can't, you know, we say that there's a virtue, like stay, stay somewhere, build roots, but that's not always possible. And no, I that's very, very human, true. But that, that creates a human tension in almost all of us that a root, that when there's a rootlessness, it creates um, sort of, it creates inner turmoil. It can't, because that's what we're made to have is roots. Um, but right. the one thing that, that he has that he has is a sort of a rootedness with Sally, right? Like her illness keeps him rooted or keeps him in place, so to speak, keeps him from floating too high or going too far or right. um, thinking too big. I really like that. I think that's good. That the thought, what do we make of the facts? Real question that out of all four of these characters, it's charity who's the one who's intentional about creating space and roots. And like she's constantly trying to anchor her family, right? We're going to build this house. We're going to live here forever. You're going to get tenure and we're going to build a life here. And we're going to go to the summer house that I'm going to make perfect so that we can all have this place, this beautiful place that is carefully cultivated to build a life. Mm. it's out of them. It is charity. Who's the one who's the most intentional about that. Mm -hmm. Charity is a very complicated character. And it's complicated by the fact that we were only seeing her through Larry's eyes. Uh, But there were, there were a lot of just really interesting things said about her in this chapter by Sally. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so when they talk about how the, the I forget their last name already. What 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 is the Langs last name? Are they the Langs? Okay. So when the Langs are going to get their daughter out of school and oh it was a disaster. And Larry's like, well we could you know Larry's being very critical. We could have told her that was going to be a disaster. I swear she's just like her mother. 
doesn't she learn anything? And so, so you're getting Larry's perspective, which we've seen a lot of charity as this force that can't be stopped and she doesn't change course. And then Sally saying, no, she did learn her lesson. That's why she's did it because she changed her mind and realized her mother was right. Hmm. And so she was going to do the, the thing for her daughter and hope that her daughter had more sense than she had and be able to appreciate it. So there, the, and, and that's a repeat of the earlier scene when she was repentant over the chicken. Like we, we keep getting charity presented as this really kind of obstinate force and it's my way or the highway. And then we see instances where, where she is changeable. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, boy, she's, she's complicated. I don't, I don't know what to think about her. I don't, I, I, I pity she's her somewhat, but then I, but I don't think I despise her. No, I don't. I agree. And you said earlier in this conversation, something really important, which is that she's not the villain. She is not the villain of this story. No, she is a complex woman, right? She's very human. And there's certain characters that we're probably going to more feel like we're like, or drawn to, or, you know, I, my husband's like this or whatever. So I'm more sympathetic. You can have sympathy or affinity or affection for a certain character, but there's nobody, I mean, particularly charity who is inherently villainous, but just complex and human. And just that picture of human frailty and also glory that is, I mean, I think indicative of the Imago Dei, even though he's not necessarily trying to um, portray the image of God, I think he succeeds in portraying reality, which is the image of God, right? Hmm. Do you wonder, I find myself wondering this in our, in our conversation, what, what would a really good marriage between Sid and Charity look like? Hmm. Right. More yeah. poetry, probably. Yeah. Like, I wonder, could she but just have, much? could she have just let him go his way and, and be the piddler and the poet former, which Jesse Brown, shout right. out to you that you pointed out to me that I totally missed that Sid is a poet former and he's in his shop with his book of rhymes. I mean, shame on me for missing that. Yes. <laughs> Sid's a poet former. Um, it but, seems but, like, a, it seems like degree again, right? Yeah. Like, but could she but, have, could she have gotten this ambitious urge out in some other way could she have just been like you know president of the junior league and been right running well, and to your town? i don't know to your point now i'm wondering because i've been sitting here thinking well what, what is the villain of the piece then what is the villain of the story then i'm if you zoom out a little bit i'm not saying this is the villain this is a question but the reason that she is so much like this is partly because the way she was raised right and then also because of the uh, the dysfunctional university culture, the publisher parish culture. Oh, she yeah, knows. that's very true. And like she, she actually has a better grasp of the reality of that than Sid does. Uh, and so that doesn't <clears> mean <throat> she's doesn't right, care. but it's there. Yeah, like there's Sid an, has yeah. money. He doesn't even need the job. That's part it. of what's so yeah. curious. Like he really could just be the poet former. Right. Right. And be yep. happy and, she and would have been, been happy humble. to raise these kids with her, which is something that they absolutely agreed on. Would have right. been happy to build that happy home and community, was happy to do it, bought the land, right? So that the, the idyllic Bartlow Pond would be um, right. protected. 
Right. Well, and I wonder too, because one thing that is conspicuously lacking, one virtue that is actually just very specifically lacking in charity is humility. And so that, I, I and I don't know if you'll relate to this or not, Angelina, but I'll, uh, just to bring some of the personal element for me in, in my marriage, I have found it very, very easy to, because I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, I have found it very easy to change on a dime when confronted with a new way of thinking about life, right? Because the way I was raised was so hard. So then when my husband would say, well, no, I mean, that's not the way we should, we shouldn't make decisions that way. We should do it that we shouldn't parent that way. We should do it this way. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's way better actually. (laughs) So I'll just do that. Like, so, but she doesn't have that at all. She was raised in a certain way. Her parents lived their life in a certain way. So she is recreating that in this generation. She has bought that. So she is bringing Sid into subjection to that. There's lots of references to matriarchy, to the opening the jaws of the matriarchy and absorbing the sons-in-law, right? That this is just a recurrence of a generational theme for her. There's no question that Sid needs to fall in line. But what if he, what if, what if she said, what if we just do things differently in this generation and in our family? What if you get to be a poet and you get to do what you love? Like that is the humility that I think is so lacking in this woman that is her great tragedy. Mm. I don't know if it's ambition or just, or, or if it's a combination of disordered ambition along with, with a lack of humility, with, with pride. Well, and I think another thing contributing to this dynamic, I was I was talking about this actually to two different people in two different conversations in the last couple of weeks about how there's a certain type of woman who looks at a man and thinks, ah, I could make something of him, right? And that's that's the drive to getting married to this man. I'm uh-huh. going to make something of him. And, yes. um, and, and Charity is definitely that kind of woman. And her mother is that kind of woman. And because she grew up with her mother and father in that kind of dynamic, she... I don't think she would think of it as I'm Learn. being prideful and I think I know what's best for both of us, but that the man genuinely needs me. My yeah, father would have been lost if my mother would not have done it. Right. Yeah. I think, yes. I think in charity's own mind, I'm not saying it's right, but I think in charity's own mind, she's helping. What right. God, where would Sid be if he didn't have me to tell right. him to put his head on, you know, like when there are women who talk like that, Oh, you know, when I met him, he was nothing. Now look at him. Um, that is not how I am at all. Oh God, no. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that's not how David's wife is. I just can't even see her being like, I'm going to make something of that Kern boy. Like, Heidi, just... Heidi's definitely like that though. Oh, clearly, clearly, <laughs> clearly. But can um... somebody please say no, she's not right now. No, there's no one else here. <laughs> My husband does not the... need to try to make something of him. That no, would be, no, a, I, I be a disaster. No, I definitely don't. I don't put you in I that know, category. I'm just kidding. Me neither. I'm just kidding. But but, but I think we've all encountered that person, right? And certainly that character in a movie or a book. Like there's definitely that woman who's like, you know, I could make something of this this guy. I feel like like charity Yes. Well, there's a lot of women who fall in love with a man's potential. That is a, that's a very real thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess some women decide to take that potential and mold it into something and others just get disappointed. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm not married. I don't know how that works, but, uh, but there's, but there is that, that woman, right. That who, who falls in love with a man's potential and I could make something of him. Wait, what's the other kind of woman? You said there are two kinds of women. 
Well, mm-hmm. yeah, who generally, don't yeah, like, I think Sally, well, I don't, <laughs> okay, so I guess the irony is that Sally is sort of making something of Larry, but she's not trying to, she's just loving him. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, oh, that's good, because oh, on the one that's hand, really good. like, what does, what does love and affection and gratefulness make of a person mm-hmm. or of a man that, that, you know, ambition shall we say or like i I don't even you know however you want to put it that like those can make two very different things um and what you get it and that you you see um you you see the way that that larry honors her and is grateful for the things that she's done for him and um it's not you know he doesn't like come out and say she's the best you know but in the way he portrays her, the restraint that Heidi has talked about, you know, that, mm-hmm. that all, it comes across the way he thinks about her and the way that he's grateful for her, um, even with her suffering in play. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting because I think, I think that when... Hey, you used my word. Oh, I did. I did. <laughs> Dave destroyed me. Copyright. I don't even mean it sarcastically. <laughs> what is happening to me? I'm trying to do some nice, cliched, basic girl over here who says things like interesting and I'll take that pumpkin soy latte. But uh... <laughs> I'm so offended right now that you just lumped that word in with pumpkin soy lattes in September. Uh, anyway, go on. Anyway, um, I think that when we love someone well, and this can be parent to child, this can be friend, and this can be romantic, that when we love someone well, it makes them more themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's, and that's really what God's true. love does for us too. It makes us more ourselves, and and that uh, when people are not loved well, or it's unhealthy love, or it's destructive love, it makes them less themselves. Uh, and I think we see the difference in these two couples. Sally loves Larry and is making him more himself. I don't I don't know that Larry could be who he is without Sally, right? Um, and. Charity thinks she's doing that to Sid. She thinks she's loving him to his best self. It's just that her idea of what his best self is and what his actual nature are, are two very different things. And that's that's the rub. So there is a, there's a very real sense in which she's making Sid less himself, right? Be the scholar, don't be the poet. And he doesn't want well, to be the scholar. I agree. And I think that goes both ways. I think that is also true of Sid with Charity. And that yeah, I'm glad you brought she, that up. Let's explore that. Go ahead, keep talking. I do see in we their have to marriage save the full conversation for next week. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. you're right. But I do see, yes, yeah, quite a bit in that. That'll be my final thought. This will be my final thought. That that he, I think he, I think the the disorder that comes from her is also reflected back from him because the glory of charity could be that she lifts suffering for people through her help the way she did for sally sally's gratitude mm-hmm. for her is mm-hmm. unmixed it is unmitigated that she is just so thankful and grateful because of this great sacrificial service that her friend has given her that has transformed the course of her life mm-hmm. and it was and so beautiful her- and selfless right charity had no yes. other goal than to love sally Yes. And I think that is in charity. I think she does have the capacity for, for great service and for true love for people. And I think that Sid, because that's come out so dysfunctionally towards him has been twisted and distorted so that he isn't, he's in some ways blocking the glory of that uh, Mm. for her. 
Hmm, I like that. Yeah, hopefully in the next couple of episodes, we can talk more about this because as we were talking, I was asking myself, what should Sid do? What should Sid do right. differently? Because I, I find myself, uh, and this is probably because I identify with Sid, but I find myself thinking of Sid as the victim in the relationship when the reality right. is probably that he's contributing to this unhealthy dynamic in some way. And so in what way is he contributing to the unhealthy dynamic and how could he change it? Like, could he just love her better? Could he speak to her insecurities and fears? Could he tell her it's going to be okay if I don't get tenure? Do we ever, would that help at all? I don't know, but surely there's got to be something he could be doing. Right. All right. Well, we should wrap this up before we do though. I just want to say that my favorite line in the book probably other than the one where he's talking about how he's it's going, he's like bringing his writing into his life. We talked about he's still covered in the snowflakes that he was writing about. Other than that, mm. my favorite line in the book is at the end of chapter four, where they're talking about going somewhere. And remember, this mm. is a whole chapter about going, like literally mm-hmm. going somewhere, making something of yourself. She says, it says she throws her eyes and her fingers skyward and says an imitation of Asunta's croak, pazienza. Her hand reaches for the canes, leaning against her chair. Will you get me up? I'd better go before we start. So I love that at the end of the chapter, that's all about like mobility. She's like, I need to go pee before we go anywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd better go before we start. I, but even that line, like it's a funny yeah. thing, right? But even that one line, I'd better go before we start. Like that's a huh. real line to think oh, yeah. about. I, did, I didn't does. even catch that. That's so no. subtle. You're exactly right. But I didn't catch it. Good job. Yeah, yeah, I thought, boy, that that's multiple levels. And same thing with the car as a metaphor. I think that's why I like this chapter so much. There were so many metaphors, but the car as mm-hmm. a metaphor that they're all they're all going somewhere together in this car, but there's not room for anyone else. Huh. And then the conversation of who do we leave behind? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, and ultimately, goes, no one. But that and that plays into like even when she says, "I have to go," like I have to go pee. She can't do something as mm-hmm. like personal as go pee without him doing it, like taking her, enabling her, like pow- empowering her to do it. Right. Like he mm-hmm. can't, if he doesn't, if he just leaves, it's pretty difficult for her to go pee. Right. Like if he doesn't, you can't leave someone behind and he can't leave her. I don't know. That all ties together. Huh. But That's also good. I just, I better go before we start that also on another level messed with time and the forward yep. and movement. And yep. um, I've got to stop before we can go. I have to stop is what she's saying. And again, Sally and Sid are always associated with non-movement. Yeah, t- going usually happens after starting. <laughs> right, right. But here, I gotta go before we start. But then, and then, of course, just the whole metaphor of like having to go pee before, the, like at the end of a chapter that's about upward mobility. Essentially, it all comes down to going pee first. Yes, and it also speaks to the idea you're saying <laughs> that everything has to be planned in their life. Yeah, that's true. Not yeah. even that. Not even basic human needs can be spontaneous. She, it's like being with a toddler, right? You know, oh, we're about to go on a road trip. Use the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. You should have used the bathroom when we were at home before we left. I didn't have to go then. I mean, that's every conversation. With we stopped up. at the rest stop 30 minutes ago. <laughs> Why didn't you go? I didn't have to go then. What were you doing behind that tree the whole time? <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, <laughs> says a parent of young boys, right? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. We got real personal on this. I know. It's like what, all of a sudden trees are involved in going to the bathroom. <laughs> oh no, that's just, that's just, that's just what my wife yells at me. Um, <laughs> So Ooh, the curtain is pulled back on the current marriage right here. <laughs> anyway, um, awesome. uh, batten down the hatches, Angelina. Oh, doing my Stay best. Dry. Keep your books health. Keep your books happy, healthy, and 
I don't know. I don't oh, know. Go for I, a walk I, I told my class yesterday because you know they can see my bookcases behind me, and they were they were very worried as they should be because they're humans about my right, books. Got souls, yep. And and I, I said, listen, don't worry. If floodwaters come into my house, I'm turning these bad boys on their back like Odysseus on the raft. I will strap myself to the mast and I will ride these bad boys to try <laughs> land. So that is my plan. Now that if that happens, make sure that there's a photo of it. Stop you Snapchatting the whole entire thing. <laughs> Everybody's got to go on. Wait, you're on Snapchat? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. Well, you'll get it on it for this. All right, got it. All right. So anyway, for Heidi and Angelina, thank you so much to everyone who's been listening. Don't forget about the plays, the thing. Don't forget about the daily poem. Subscribe, rate, review. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support, and make sure you follow Angelina on Snapchat. <laughs> Have a great well, I week. Post pictures of my pumpkin soy latte every day. So. <laughs> exactly. And Star- Starbucks probably spells your name wrong, right? <laughs> anyway, happy reading, and we will talk to you next week here on uh, Crossing Close Reads. <laughs> yeah, here, here on Crossing Safety. Here on Close Reads. In my head, I was going to say, happy reading Crossing to Safety. Right. And then I almost didn't because I was like, which show am I even on right now? That's been a long show. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to go uh, swim in the rainwater for a while. There you, you go. Next week. <laughs> <laughs>